Welcome to episode 171 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And this is the podcast of Brotherly Love. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much, man. You know, I was wondering, before we get into some affirmations and denials, I, I had this thought, and okay. during our pre-game interview or pre-game uh, conference, which was like a second long, you confided to me that you've had the same thought. You know, we're on a episode 171, and you and I have joked a little bit about how, like, episode 179 is the gold standard for reform podcast longevity, because that's... Is. How many episodes the Reform Pubcast went before they stopped making podcasts? We're uh, coming for you. We're coming for you, Les. But I was wondering, though, if you look at all of the shows that have kind of like descended from or been inspired by the Reformed Pubcast, right? So like excluding like Christ the Center, which has been going on for 10 years or like Renewing Your Mind or White Horse Inn, like those shows that are kind of like. I don't know, like Generation One or like 1.0 uh, podcasting, all of the shows that have kind of descended out of the Reform Pubcast. I can't think of another show that has been going on for longer than we have that has a hundred more than 179 episodes or that has been consistent every single week. Do you know right. of any? I don't. And I'm thinking about this, not necessarily in light of what well, we're trying to kind of show our pervasiveness with how consistent we've been in podcasting, but more just as a manner of, well, who are the peers that have been maybe started at the same time we did yeah. and have also continued for this long? I also could not think of a list. I mean, there's the staples that we know exist, but we started kind of as a new generation, so to speak. Right. And so I was trying to find our peer group and I, I couldn't really find anybody at least that came to mind that was in the same episode range. Yeah, I can't think of any. Reform Brotherhood listeners, if you can think of an episode, I'm sure if somebody's going to write in and, and name like 70 episodes or 70 podcasts that have been going longer <laughs> than us. But if you can For think sure. of kind of the, I hate to use this terminology because it's not really accurate of a lot of shows, but sort of like the Reformed Pubcast clones or like the Reformed Pubcast derivatives, you know, like the two guys chatting about theology kind of shows rather than like the more old school, like radio formats like White Horse Inn or uh, like the radio preaching ministries like Renewing Your Mind or Truth For Life. If you can think of a show that's been going for 171 or 179 episodes, maybe like popcorn theology, but I don't actually know if they're still making episodes. I suppose I could question. probably just like look it up in like my phone's right there, but I don't know. It's an interesting thought. I appreciate you being focused, yeah. leaving that phone to the side. Yeah, so that we can just I did. Chat. I did notice last week again that you were texting with my wife while we were recording an episode. <laughs> and you know what's Seems... great about that is when I was actually sending the response, I thought Tony's going to pick up on this and call me out at some point. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. You know, we can do it's it. It's that multitask culture. As long as you don't text and drive, I suppose you can text and podcast. That is true. Yeah. That's true. I totally agree with that. Well, well speaking of agreeing among things, 
let's get into some affirmations and denials. How about you kick us off with a little affirmation action? Yeah. So you know how you're always bringing like affirmations about music uh, and I'm usually bringing affirmations about some cool new tech thing. I'm not going to do either of those, but I am going (laughs) to affirm a show, a Netflix show called Lost in Space. Have you seen this show? Wait, like which, which we're talking about the old school version? Like the new version. No, I haven't seen it. So a little while ago, you and I lamented the fact that like you can't really find like it's hard because you you find like a cool new concept for a Netflix or Amazon Prime show. And then you watch like an episode and it gets all like sexualized and like you have to stop watching Lost in Space. The new version is just good, relatively wholesome space science fiction fun. Like, okay, there's there's very little language issues. The language, you know, they, they cuss a little bit, but it's relatively mild. There's no there has been no sex and no nudity whatsoever. Even the violence in the show is is relatively tame. Um, I don't know that it's designed like it's not really marketed to kids, but it's just a fun show. And they take kind of the it's really more of like a, an homage to the old show if you ever watched the original Lost in Space but it's the same family it's the Robinson family but it's like a whole different conception of what the Lost in Space franchise is so Ashley and I it's in it's in season two it's on Netflix you can binge the whole thing if you want it's really a good show it's really quite enjoyable have you seen some of the original episodes? I have. And the, I mean, obviously for the time they were good, but like they're terrible, but it's a very different, um, it's a very different concept. Like the original show was like this family gets lost in space. And then like they hop from planet to planet. And each week is kind right. of like its own self-contained zany, like antics filled episode. This one really is like a grand, a grand story arc, like the kind of thing you'd expect from a Netflix series where it's, it's building characters, it's universe building, it's sequential, you know, goes from, from episode to episode and builds the story. And it's, it's not just the one family that's lost in space. It's like this whole colony mission of like thousands of humans that get lost and they, they separate and come back together. It's just really, really good. I mean, I really enjoy that show. Is there a super sweet robot? There is. He's a really, really cool robot. He's not nice. the corny made out of cardboard robot, but he's also not like <laughs> most of most of the effects are practical effects. So it's not okay, even really cool. uh, it's not even really mostly a CGI robot. And he's he's very interesting. It's a very interesting way that they've integrated the robot into the story. I think in the original, wasn't it like a robot that they built? I think so. Yeah. In this one, it's not. It's like an alien robot. There's a whole like backstory and like the primary conflict in the show actually involves this robot and kind of where he comes from. It's really, really, really a good show. I've seen a couple episodes of the original, but the only thing I really remember is the robot saying danger, Will Robinson. I don't even know if that robot has a name, but I'm pretty sure you're right that they constructed it for the purposes of the travel. Yeah, the mission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So check it out. It's on Netflix, Lost in Space. Like I said, it, it's so hard to find a good Netflix series that isn't filled with just smut and trash. So when you find one, it's like, tell all your friends. The Mandalorian was kind of like that on Disney Plus. That was a really good sci-fi thing. There was no major. I mean, it was a little bit violent, but but this is just a good, wholesome show. Like you could it's a little intense at times, but you could like sit and watch it 
with your kids. I mean, I have kids, but like if you had young children that were okay with a little bit of like intensity, it's not going to like give them nightmares or like expose them to really bad stuff you don't want them seeing. I totally agree with you. And at the risk of breaking this completely wide open so that we result in a conversation that lasts approximately seven hours, (laughs) I just want to say that I agree with the Mandalorian reference. And while, again, for all the purists out there, what I'm about to say I know is somewhat offensive. Uh Uh-oh. Love the baby Yoda. I know it's not Yoda, but I love... Oh, no, it's totally fine to call him baby Yoda. Okay, I mean, I use Yoda as representative of that species. This is so nerdy. No. As representative of that species, but super adorable. They did such a good job with that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this could be like its whole... I mean, there have been entire podcasts just on this show. Yeah, I mean, Yoda, the Yoda species is so interesting in in all of Star Wars canon (laughs) because nowhere anywhere have they ever given his species a name. And there's only like one other instance of his species and his name was Yaddle. So like we have to assume that like that Y name, that that format is like somehow representative of the species. But yeah, officially this little baby's name is just called the child. That's what he's called. But yeah, baby Yoda is much more descriptive. So adorable. Like they did such a good job designing him or her to be not creepy, but super like winsome and ingratiating and just downright cute. Yeah, he's adorable. I'm assuming it's I'm going to assume his gender. Oh, you're going you're going a boy. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. there's never been a known female of the species. I mean, you have to assume there (laughs) are females of the species, but I don't think there's ever been one in Star Wars canon. Was it okay? I got, I got all kinds of follow up questions, but yeah. we should probably move on. We should move on to the theology part of the show. What are what are you uh, affirming? Uh, I'm also going to go off the rails just a tiny bit, and I'm affirming with some food this week. And I'm like a snack person; like I could run a train on chips. Like for me, there is no serving size of chips that isn't single serving. Yeah. For sure. For me, I just love chips and I try to limit the amount of carbs I eat because I know like eating a ton of carbs is not particularly great for you. But what I'm affirming with specifically is popcorn. And here's something that I came across I would say within like the last year that I think is worth sharing. So first off, I used to love to eat microwave popcorn But in reality, that stuff is like not really particularly good for you, of course, because there's all these chemicals in the bag and even the flavoring itself is completely artificial. So the first part of the affirmation is I totally affirm air poppers. This is the way to make popcorn, because if you're lazy like me, it's one super easy and two, it's super clean. All you're getting is just popped kernels. So it's really good for you. But here's the moneymaker right here. And that is here's what I've discovered that makes all the difference is who doesn't want a little butter in their popcorn. Like I can't just eat plain popcorn. Like I'm, I'm a human being. God has made me. I want the butter. And so what I've discovered though, is if you melt, you make your air pop popcorn, which is delicious. It's a a pure blank canvas ready for the flavoring that you want to provide to it. If you melt real butter, not margarine, but if you melt the real butter and you put it on the popcorn, what happens like initially right away, immediately is it actually starts to make the popcorn messy or to use terms that would be, I would say comfortable for you. It compromises the structural (laughs) integrity of the pop kernel. In fact, here's the experiment you can try. If you melt real butter 
and then you spoon that out ever so gently on your popcorn and you put your ear to the bowl, you're going to hear it. It's going to sound like you're adding milk to Rice Krispies. You're going to actually hear it start to degrade and it makes the popcorn really soggy right away. Here's the best thing. Instead of using the actual butter, because what you're craving is like a fatty component, use coconut oil because the coconut oil, when you drizzle it over, you're not going to get that sound. It actually, it has a higher fat content. And so it actually stays on the surface of the popcorn spread throughout. And then you throw a little sea salt, not table salt on top of that. And you're going to be like, this is the most delicious popcorn I've ever eaten. And not only is it really delicious, it's super good for you because of course there's all, all these polyphenols and everything else in the coconut oil that we normally don't get. So I'm affirming air pop your popcorn, throw some coconut oil on there with a little sea salt. It's delicious. It's savory. It's rich. That's what you're craving. And I would say that nine times out of 10, nine people out of 10 people won't even notice that it's not the butter, because what you're craving again is that fat content. If you want to get super funky and take it to the next level, you can use avocado oil. That's like the advanced version of this whole thing. But I'm just affirming popcorn, air pop popcorn with a little bit of sea salts and coconut oil. It is amazingly delicious snack. And it's one that you can kind of like take and relish in and you're not actually doing a large amount of harm to your body. Jesse, you know, it's funny that we started this episode talking about how many episodes we've recorded, because I don't think you realize this, but you have done this exact affirmation before. <laughs> like a hundred percent exact. Like have even, seriously even some of the again? like like the joke lines, the like the way that you led into it, you have reused uh, this affirmation. So the reason well, I know this, embarrassing. Now, either that or I'm having like the most crazy deja vu that's ever, embarrassing. but the, the reason I know this is because when I posted this episode on the reform pub and someone listened to it, what they told me is the reason your popcorn is shriveling up when you use re real butter is not because of the fact that it's butter. It's because it's too hot. So the reason that coconut oil doesn't do that is because it melts at a lower temperature. And so the, the, I mean, liquid, the liquid coconut oil is not as hot as the liquid butter is. And that's why the structural integrity of your popcorn is not violated. <laughs> but yeah, that, this well, is this is uh, this is unreal to me. It's, it's hilarious. Uh, I well, love it. I need it, to dig up what episode this is now. I could seriously like cut the audio out of that episode and just drop it into this episode. Exactly the same. And it would be the same thing. Well, here's the thing. It's so good an affirmation that <laughs> deserves to be repeated like every 50 episodes or so. Yeah. I, I thought I hadn't mentioned it because I was experimenting again. Uh, well, maybe I'll, I'll kick it up a notch and say like, then go with the avocado oil. <laughs> I do keep it pretty hot. So I feel like there's a different that I do know, like the fat content. It was well, just totally different chemically. So it's interesting. Maybe it is about the heat. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely worth doing. So like, I, here's the thing. There's somebody that heard it the first time and was like, yeah. Maybe that sounds interesting, but I'll get around to it. So now I'm coming back at you for all the people in the back that didn't hear me the first time saying, go get yourself an air popper. Don't use the oil poppers like those. I know there's you think, listen, I want to just put stuff in oil because oil is delicious, especially when it gets hot and it makes things it heats them up. But the air popper is totally legit. Like, do you guys have an air popper? Yeah, we do. Do you use it? Yeah. One time we put too many kernels in it and it sounded smelled like it was going to catch on fire. Because the kernels just sat there because they couldn't move. Yeah. Oh, that that's do great. not fill right, well, line then, is there uh, for a reason. Or fill, do not fill past here line is there for a reason. 
Well, then, I, since apparently I've already said this, and obviously, like, I was blinded by my own sheer passion for popcorn. I'm just going to leave it at that. Please take us into denial. Well, I have a new denial. <laughs> it's repeating your affirmation without knowing it. No. Um, my denial is snowplows. And uh, there's a very particular reason I'm denying snowplows. So one of the like amazing uh, blessings that most people in the United States have, uh, even in very rural areas, is daily mail service. Like it's a it's a blessing that we so take for granted. And the reason that I am bringing that up in relation to snowplows is because we had a relatively significant uh, storm event last Thursday. Uh, I actually got like stuck in the middle of town and like couldn't get out because we live in kind of this valley. So I had to like camp out at this local diner. But when we came home from work that night, the snowplow had completely just blasted our mailbox all the way out of the ground. Just like destroyed awesome. it. Like there was probably I went out and looked, you know, you can see like the line where the plow actually plows. There was maybe right. like four inches between the post of the mailbox and where the snowplow had been. But the, the, the actual mailbox hangs out over that by like a foot and a half. So he, he right. smashed it. And I went and found the mailbox and it was like 20 feet down the road. So like it wasn't awesome. even like he nicked it or bumped it. He just like <laughs> hit it full on. The whole thing was mangled. And so now uh, because our local post office closes at five o'clock every night and I don't get out of work until five o'clock every night, I have to wait and go get all of our mail on Saturday. Because the snowplow blasted our our snow or blasted our mailbox. Did it break it completely off the post or was it just the mailbox itself that got separated from the post? Yeah, like the way that the mailbox is set up is there's there's a po a vertical post and then there's a horizontal um, crossbar and they nestle together <laughs> and then there's like a I supporting brace. There's a supporting <laughs> brace. And so when he hit the when he hit yeah. the crossbar, it just knocked that whole crossbar and the supporting brace off. So the post is all jacked up. We're going to have to replace it in the spring. And this is the worst part. It's winter and the ground is frozen. So we can't even like dig out the post and put up a new post in a new mailbox. Right. Because we can't dig out the, the ground. So we for the rest of the winter, we are stuck with having to go down to the post office. So, so if you're listening to this, the sound of my voice... My first thing is put up some reflectors on your, your mailbox so your snow uh, plow doesn't blast it. And second, take some time to realize how much of a blessing it is to have daily mail service to your home. Because it really right it really is like a crazy inconvenience to like have to find time on a Saturday to drive down to the mailroom. Like I mentioned before, we get a lot of Amazon packages because we do like Amazon subscribe and save. So like I'm walking out of there with like 12 packages. Each one of them has like one one like box of tea in it. So yeah. So I'm denying maybe not all snow plows, but like careless snow plows. Sure. Yeah. So let me address something that's only superficially related to that denial, because I know that there are people out there thinking this very thing. The question they have in their minds right now is, is this Tony's real idiolect? Does he actually speak this way when he just speaks casually and there's not a recording device in front of him. And I want to say to you all, the answer is a yes. <laughs> so what you just heard with the verb of nestling, that is the mailbox is what? nestled up against the post. That is actually how you describe it to me if we were just having a beer with one another in a totally private place. Yeah, I don't understand why that's strange. <laughs> 
it's no, I'm not saying it's strange. <laughs> this is like the same line of like the structural integrity thing. You just have a way of speaking that's, you know, somewhat poetic, I would say. I, actually, I think we both do this to each other. And people have often asked, like, is that the actual way you guys talk yeah, to each other? Or true. is this just the way you kind of fabricate it for the sake of the podcast? No, this is 100% real. Like, this is who we are. This is just bare naked. We're out there. Yeah. This is how we actually talk. And if it sounds nerdy, that's because we are <laughs> at heart truly nerds. Giant nerds. Yeah. Yeah. So what about you? What are you denying? Oh, that's great. Okay. Wait, wait. Before just, you start. Have you done this denial before? <laughs> wow. Uh, I love you, brother. Maybe. Maybe. I don't even know. So you'll have to tell me. Let me start by asking, do you have any Bluetooth speakers that you use regularly? Uh, not really. I have Bluetooth headphones, but not like a speaker that sits on my desk. Okay. So here's my beef with and my denial against Bluetooth speakers. And I'm going to... You can file this away as they're like things that are just first world problems I'm totally complaining about. And I understand that. I wanted a nice Bluetooth speaker to use uh, at the office, something that is like subtle and calm and discreet. And as much as I can tell, that speaker does not exist. <laughs> and the reason why is because every Bluetooth speaker wants to make you aware of one, when it's ready to pair with your device. Yes. And two, when it's paired. Yeah. And it doesn't want to do that subtly. So I'm sitting next to a speaker right now, for instance, that has a nice woman's voice. But when you turn it on, it wants to speak super loudly. So it'll be like, ready to pair, <laughs> like at, like a million decibels. Does it sound angry? So like if because that sounded pretty angry. No, that was just my that was just my interpretation. It was like of it, your Bluetooth speaker got possessed by the devil for a second. <laughs> Ready to yeah, bear. It's just, it's just angry that I've turned it on and I'm asking <laughs> it to do something. So maybe somebody out there actually has a really good recommendation for a Bluetooth speaker that either one doesn't have like a loud sound or some kind of beeping or some kind of signification that it's ready and has paired. Because when you're in an open office environment, the last thing you want to do is like make it plainly obvious that you're trying to listen to something. Yeah. And so I'm denying against the fact that somebody hasn't created a Bluetooth speaker where you can just, there's an option for you to turn that thing off. And so far I haven't found one. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't really like Bluetooth as a, like, pr as like a, a like, like protocol. A no, no. Like I don't have, I'm not opposed to like the concept of Bluetooth. I don't, know. I don't like, like Bluetooth, Bluetooth in terms of the actual, like, technology it, it like it doesn't work very well it's not super reliable oh it's just so not like, like efficient and yeah effective? like you can have a bluetooth speaker one bluetooth speaker that can go like 20 feet away and then the yeah. same bluetooth speaker under slightly different conditions needs to be like practically touching the transmitter so like, like as nestled? far as signal go yeah it needs to be nestled against it <laughs> as far as as far as like stability and consistency goes bluetooth is just not a reliable things so i don't know i maybe i'm old school but like i like speakers with wires well because they, they don't make a sound like well here's the thing in that example you just gave no matter how effective they are here's one thing i can guarantee you they'll all both be equally loud it's true when they let you know that they're ready to pair and that they pair the device well and that's the challenge though because since they have this ridiculous loud pairing signal or connection signal with the way that they are if like the the condition changes and it disconnects, right. it's like, bong, and then like a second later, it'd be like, beep, boop, to like say it came back. So that's actually a really good impression yeah. of a lot of the speakers that I've tried. <laughs> Somebody help me. I'm looking for a Bluetooth speaker that is like discreet, clandestine, if you will, that's willing to say, hey, I'm connected 
but I don't need to let everybody know that that just happened. Yeah, preferably one that doesn't repeat itself unnecessarily. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure this has been the definitive 171st episode <laughs> of the Reformed Brotherhood. We've already closed in on so much ground. It's so definitive um, that we had to repeat it. <laughs> so, so definitive. The popcorn thing is legit. Somebody needed to hear that for the second time. I'm pretty sure. I love it. Uh, well, <laughs> so we, we are in, in the, we're actually like almost, I would say we're what, maybe like two thirds of the way through our whole Micah cast series. Yeah. And the thing that's great about this episode is we basically like teased to ad nauseum in the last one, because we're getting to that most famous of all verses in the book of Micah, the one that's quoted everywhere that's put on, on cards all over the world, the one that's quoted as being the quintessential representation of everything Micah says, we're finally at Micah 6, 8, and we have a whole episode to devote just to that single verse. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when we had first planned out this series, we were planning on including this verse along with the rest of this pericope. Um, you know, pericope is just kind of like a somewhat arbitrary, but like a, a de defined chunk of text that seems like a single unit of text. And so verse eight really belongs with verse one through seven. But we got this question uh, through our Facebook um, messenger here for the, the page. And it comes from uh, Jackson Hull, who is not only probably one of my favorite California listeners, but is also a community manager in our Facebook group. So you, you may not realize this, but we have a couple different people in the group who serve as community managers, not so much as moderators or admins, but they're kind of responsible for like keeping the conversation going. So um, Jackson has been really great about like posting good questions and keeping things going. And so he asked this question. He said, I was listening to your guys' heresy cast on Marcionism. And it got me thinking about how obviously we shouldn't take our proverbial scissors and cut out certain parts of the Bible. I had a two-part question, but you answered the first one at the end of the podcast. How in Romans 3, Paul says we must uphold the law. I've always wondered what he meant by that since Jesus fulfilled it. The specific example I have in mind, though, is Jeremiah 29, 11. Famously, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And Christians apply that verse to themselves all the time. The verse prior says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. My question is, is it eisegetical to apply some promises to us believers and then disregard the surrounding text? And also, how do I determine which verses are meant for me? So Good question. if you if you boil it all down, what Jackson's asking and the reason that we're we're doing this episode with just this one verse is because this is one of those verses that so often gets pulled out of its context and applied without any consideration about what is actually going on in the passage, what leads up to it, what follows it, what's going on in the book. And what he's asking is, is it okay? Or maybe better, let me rephrase that. How do we appropriately apply a verse like Micah 6.8 in a way that's uh, appropriate but respects the context? And as we said last week, like we have a tough time even understanding the context of Micah 6 right. because as Christians, you know, we will never stand under God's judgment the way that Israel did. Like the the covenant promises will never be taken away from us and they, they could never be taken away from us. Where in Micah 6, 8, the whole point of the passage is that God is prosecuting his covenant lawsuit and he's, he's saying that the covenant 
uh, sanctions will now be applied, which is the loss of the blessings and the application of the curses. So it got me thinking we should do an episode on this because one of the other things we've talked about in this series is that we don't spend a lot of time in the prophets because hermeneutically, sometimes it's hard to apply them. It's hard to understand right. what they mean. How do they even apply to us? How does a passage about a foreign army invading Israel and sieging Jerusalem, how does that apply to me in 2020 on the other side of the world as a Gentile? Right. That's well said. I mean, my perception is that most of the time what happens with passages like this is because there is a prophetic nature to them where we understand that there be, they are being spoken to a particular time in a particular people group. They either end in one of two ways. Either we take them merely as some kind of historical artifact, right. or we tend to allegorize them to such an extent that they mean next to nothing in the, in the, the context in which it was contemporary, they were being spoken. And we turn them into something that they didn't mean altogether because we're right. trying to apply them in a modern context. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about some other passages that this happens to. What comes to mind to you as far as other passages? You know, we talked about Jer uh, the question involved, Jeremiah 29, 11. What other passages come to mind with this that you can think of? Honestly, that for me is like the pinnacle, the zenith is Jeremiah yeah. 29, 11. And to do like a totally shameless plug, if you're looking for an episode on a podcast that talks about that verse in particular, if you go to the Fast God Stuff podcast, there's an episode where we talk about all the verses that get misused. And that I think is one of the main ones. But um, there, there's lots of them for me. Nothing comes close to that. Actually, this comes second close. I know that's kind of like a cop out answer. But I have such a huge pet peeve with Jeremiah 29, 11, that it foreshadows, yeah. foreshadows, it shadows over anything else that would be even closely second to it. Yeah. Yeah. For me, the one that comes to my mind, and it's one that, that most people don't think of in this conversation, but in Lamentations 3, um, verse 22, right? The steadfast mercies of the Lord never cease. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, right? You see that like cross-stitched on pillows. People like put it up on their, you know, their Instagram with a nice like background field with the sunset, right. the sunrise. But the whole context of this is the destruction of Jerusalem. So if you even just go back to verse 16, it says, and it's talking about God. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings with a wormwood and gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord, so on and so forth. So the, the context of this passage is not some general... God's mercies are new every morning. You know, I know that right, I had a rough sure. day at work yesterday and my boss yelled at me for being late, but God's mercies are new every morning. I don't know why I'm putting on that voice, but like <laughs> that's the context you usually see it used in. But the context of this sure. is so much in one sense, like it's so much darker, but because it's so much darker, the promise that is being expressed by Jeremiah here is that much more profound. He's saying yes. that the way that he reassures himself is he calls to mind this promise that the steadfast love of the of love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies are new every morning. So it's just like in the Psalms where you have like the, the lamentation Psalms, the, the lament Psalms, where, you know, he, it, it's this dark, terrible situation, right? All of my enemies surround me. Uh, they've pierced my side. They, they've done right. this. They've done that but I will call upon the Lord or I will trust the Lord. There's this statement of hope in the midst of this uh, darkness. That's really strong. 
Okay. Well then I do have one actually. So I'm, I'm coming back from this now. So one that I would say is like similar because you reminded me this, this juxtaposition between the light and the darkness. In fact, when you find these amazing promises, usually they're in the context of having to come right. to bear and to come against all of this traumatic and dark events that are happening in the life of God's people that either he has by his justice caused them to bear up underneath or because through their own deceitfulness or the disobedience they've come to bear on their own. But one that I think is really taken out of context in the same light would be from like Matthew 18. Yeah. So this whole, that whole chapter is about discipline in the church. And that is where we find at the end of that chapter, that little verse that likes to get stripped out, which is for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'm present. And so that is like a unique promise in the darkness of having to really come to bring God's discipline to bear on his own people, which yeah. is a tremendously painful thing. And so because of that, there is this promise that God is present in the midst of that kind of event. And yet we take that to mean just like, well, even if you can only get a couple of people together on your prayer night, God's going to honor the prayer because he's yeah. going to be there because you got at least three people. And that, to, I think to your main point, when we look at verses like this, what we're actually doing is we're really cheapening them. Yeah. We're distilling them down to what we think is like their essential elements. But in so doing, we're making them like Frankensteins. We're pulling out what we think God is actually saying, but devoid or divorced or separated from the context, they're actually so much less robust. And I think that's exactly what we have in Micah 6, 8. Yeah. Yeah. In the best case scenario, you've settled for like the Walmart generic version of the verse. Like you've settled for a version of what the promise is that is so diluted and nothing that it barely offers you anything. In the worst right. case scenario, you've totally distorted the context of the verse, the meaning of the verse. So in, in the Matthew 18 uh, uh, example you're bringing up, the, the context of it is not God is going to honor your prayer when you get a couple people together. It's right, that exactly. It's that God is going Jesus Christ is going to preside over the excommunication of a of a recalcitrant sinner such that when there are two or three witnesses and that charge is established by the church that what you have what the church has sealed on earth as the excommunication of this inv individual Christ is going to seal in heaven. That's the context of the verse. There, there right. are other verses that use this two or three language in the context of sort of general prayer. And it's the same as like, whatever you pray in my name, like those kinds of things are there. But this verse means something very, very different if you neglect to observe the whole context. But in our passage here in Micah 6, 8, I don't know that it's, it's exactly like that. I don't think you really lose the meaning of the passage, but I do think you lose the the full robust sense of the passage such that it becomes kind of this chintzy little substitute for the real yes. deal. No, I'm glad you said it that way because in preparation for this conversation, I was thinking that exact thing. It's not as if there is a lot of offense happens because you just take it completely out of context. By itself, there is meaning in here which is rich and helpful. It's not a complete perversion, but it seems like we can still slight it. And I'm hoping that if somebody has been tracking with us all along the way, that we they need to recognize that consideration of Micah's superlative saying, it has to occur in the context of his entire discourse, right. which contains like three major divisions that we talked about. And each of those divisions really begins with this clarion call to hear. That's what Micah is saying on behalf of God. So in Micah 1, 2, he says, hear you peoples, all of you pay attention. 
Then in Micah 3.1, he goes to hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? And then in Micah 6.1, before we get to this verse in chapter in the verse 8, hear what the Lord says. Again, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the, hears hear your, the hills hear your voice. So to me, what I'm sensing is the call is at once universal, it's national, and it's particular. It's across all these spectrums. No one is admitted. And when God speaks, he speaks to all without distinction. And then here comes verse eight. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we just for context sake, since we're talking about the context, I'm going to start reading in verse six, but just for giving the fuller uh, context, verses one uh, through five are basically God's final uh, accusation, or not his final accusation, but are, are an accusation of the covenant lawsuit. And so um, what it what it does is it's God's establishing this charge. He's establishing the indictment. And Micah, as his prophet, is acting as the prosecuting attorney. And then, and this has happened before in Micah, where all of a sudden the speaker shifts. And so Micah then takes on like the personage of Israel, of the people of Israel in verse six. And when he reads it, he says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has, and then it switches back to Micah. So it's almost like he, and then I'll read the verse. It's almost like Micah is reading a statement to the court. It's like he's he's saying exhibit A. This is exhibit A in the prosecuting uh, argument is this ridiculous statement by the people of Israel asking what they should do, acting as though they don't understand what God expects of them. And then he right. says, and this is kind of like his rebuttal to that implied argument. He says, he has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. And so where we read this as sort of like a general uh, precept given to us, which is is okay. Like, it's okay to look at this and say, this is a nice short summary of God's law right? You do justice. You you live in a just sense, according to God's law. You love kindness, which is commanded of us in in the law. And you walk humbly, which is also commanded us in the law. But when we read it in that way, and we don't look at it as sort of like the final piece of evidence in this, this covenant lawsuit, if we're not careful when we apply it to ourselves, it becomes evidence against us. Because who who walks, who does justice and who loves kindness and who walks humbly with God. Like I don't on most occasions, you don't like none of us do. So we have to make sure that we're recognizing the law here. And when we recognize the law, then we are driven to see the gospel. Right. So that that's part of what we have to do with this passage. Yeah, that's well said, because I think if we would rightly apprehend the force and the scope of that crucial saying, we have to interpret it in light of the Old Testament, which is right. really, of course, the way in which Micah is speaking it. And for us, it's easy on the other side of the cross to really focus, to focus so hard on God's mercy that we lose the weights, like the full burden of what the law means here. Yeah. Even like this idea of justice. So starting, because my feeling with this verse is that not only do we have a tendency to interpret it in kind of a slogan or a bumper sticker kind of right. way, like... Here, isn't it nice just that finally somebody in the entire scriptures just distilled down what we have to do? 
So in our daily practice, what do you need to do? Here it is, Micah tells us. Yeah. But I worry that our understanding of justice is more influenced by, for instance, in the, I would say like in the Western world, by like modern democracy and the court system than it is by what we're understanding Micah saying here. Because when he's talking about justice, he's really talking about, like you just said, that which is in conformity with the truth and the right according to the holy law of God. Right. And that's fundamental because it notes likeness to God who made us in his own image. So I think like immediately of Deuteronomy 32, 4, which says the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. So think about that by itself. Like all his ways are justice. Not all his ways are just. We're getting a definition of God by use of the word justice and vice versa. So justice is who God is and who God is, is justice. And it goes on to say a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So it's interesting that use the adjective of just to talk about the actions of God, but who is God? He is a just God. Yeah. So we're speaking more about identity and not just some kind of way of metting out punishment or retribution. This is not just about a court scenario, although ironically, that's the way in which it's being presented. Like you said, that this is evidence against us, but that justice itself is a part of the triune God. And so for us to be just is not just to do certain things or to act in a way in which we might subscribe to the common law of our land. It is to have the character of God who is in himself justice, which means everything God does, that is just. Yeah. Not what we think is fair, not which our, our legal system or our way of organizing mankind denotes as this is what is profitable or right. Everything that God represents and who he is, that is just, even if it goes against not only just man-made law, but man-made conception. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if we, with this particular passage, and then I want to go to a couple other elements of this question, but with this particular passage, what you need to realize is this passage is a covenant lawsuit, Right. And so when we abstract it out of it, we totally lose that. And last week we talked about how in verse uh, verse three, God basically brings up the prologue to the Ten Commandments. Right. He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, redeem you from the house of slavery. This this verse here at the end of this pericope, it forms an inclusio where the beginning of it is a reference to the law. And the back half is a reference to the law. It's this, this choice of language is not a mistake. If you go to Deuteronomy 10, 12, it says, and now Israel, what does the Lord, your God require of you, but to fear the Lord, your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So this, this structure of the passage prevents us from pulling this, this passage out and isolating it as its own thing, right? The verses, the verse numbers, the chapter numbers, those are all artificial to the text. Those have all been imposed. They're not uh, inspired. They don't hold any authority at all. If you want to chop this in half and make it so the first half is chapter six, we renumber everything after that. So the second half is chapter seven. It would be probably imprudent to do that because then everyone would be confused. But it's not it's not a sin to do that. It doesn't make any difference. But the actual structure of this text, the fact that it begins with this allusion to the law and it ends with an allusion to the law, it, it prevents us from isolating that out. And to do that is to ignore the, the divine logic and the divine rhetoric, which is embedded in this oracle. And that's why we have to be careful not to pull stuff out of context. 
Right. Because it, it seems like this is the kind of thing where it's just giving us some kind of like instruction, a, a straight imperative, but it's so much more than that. And it can only be more than that when we understand that from where it's being birthed, like right. what is driving Micah to come to this like grand conclusion. Cause in many ways, I see this almost as like at the closing argument. Like he's, it's almost yeah. like rhetorical in the sense, like here's the argument. And then you're probably wondering what does God require of you? Well, he said all those things and you stole my reference. Cause I was going to take that also <laughs> from Deuteronomy and, and really, really kind of like bring to light again and remind some, at least myself that what he's saying is not something new. So I think we, we stumble sometimes upon a verse like this and we say, this is so great. Like I wish somebody had said this before. And in fact, it has been said before yeah. because this is the beauty. And uh, I would say like the graciousness of God that he continues to draw our minds back to the things that he said. And I, I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm thinking, man, there's like immediate Christological implications to this because yeah. since there, this is like utterly impossible apart from the divine grace and the help of the Holy spirit, the would be Christian is cast unconditionally upon what Christ accomplished for us on the cross and by his resurrection. Like even in this passage, we have embedded this promise that the only one can, that can really help us to fulfill that, which is required is the perfect God, man, Christ himself. And so this really convicts the sinner of a desperate need but where there is a conviction, there is always with it a divine invitation yeah. to come to Christ for mercy. And so in this, I see so much of the atonement. And again, when we take it as just like, well, this is what is given to us by way of rule of life for instruction. We fail to realize that impounded within it is actually all of the Christian message, all of the gospel and the good news itself, that the only way we can come to this and bring it about in our lives with fruition and a fullness is if Jesus Christ himself is evident in such a way that we have been not only regenerated, but empowered and filled with the Holy spirit. Yeah. 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 I think that's, I mean, that's right on is, is these passages. And this, this is why I say we have to learn to see the law and the gospel, uh, not because every passage is law and gospel, which is, is what the federal vision advocates would say. And that the, the difference between law and gospel is actually in the heart of the listener rather than in the text itself. But because the purpose of the law in whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the purpose of the law is either to convict and condemn the reprobate or to drive the elect to Christ. Like for those right. who are not yet exactly. regenerate, who are not yet uh, not yet Christians, that is a single purpose that is applied to the reprobate and the elect differently is that the law condemns us. Those who are reprobate remain stubbornly under that condemnation. Those who are elect are driven to Christ to seek salvation, but that drives us to the gospel, right? So where's the gospel in this? Well, the gospel in this is not that somehow you can do it. Somehow you can make it happen. Somehow this standard is, is something you can do. The gospel is all throughout the, the, I almost said the gospel of Micah, which is actually probably not too bad. All throughout the book <laughs> of Micah, the gospel is that there's a redeemer coming, right? We, we've talked about that all right. over the place. There's a redeemer coming who can fulfill this law for you, who when accused in the covenant lawsuit of the cross, he is found innocent, but he bears your guilt. And then he's vindicated by God and granted the resurrection, which then he grants to us. So you're absolutely right that anytime we're looking at a passage like this, the law, it's not just driving us to the gospel, 
not to pull like an Andy Stanley and, and separate Jesus from the scripture or Jesus from the gospel, but it doesn't drive us to the gospel in, in some sense that the gospel is something apart from Jesus. The gospel is right. that we get Christ, we get Jesus. And since we get Jesus, he saves us with his own salvation. Yes. That's, you know, that's so important because I think when we get to the part where we see this to love mercy, and maybe I, I'll only speak for myself here because I don't want to presume this on others, but I do not understand what it means to love mercy. There's an intellectual assent with the concept, but this idea of understanding and acting in such a way that I love mercy, it's not just about giving this like bearing underneath the weight of an idea that makes me more compassionate yeah. or makes me more patient with people. You know, what Mike is talking about here, again, in the context is it is a demonstration that at the altar of sacrifice as like the covenant love of God, pardoning the sinner and reclaiming him to righteousness with new quickened life for the soul. That's what he's talking about here. Again, yeah. it's not just like be kind and loving to other people. We can't use that as a synonym for mercy in this context. There is none perfect other than Christ himself. And to love mercy then is to reciprocate the saving love of God and to manifest it in our lives to other act, to others by acts of compassion and helpfulness. That is like way deeper and way more broad and way harder. Because again, I think everything that God is calling us to hear through what Mike is saying is the kind of stuff that says, you should realize when you hear this in your ears, that if you see this in a bumper sticker, you should immediately say, well, I can't do that. Like there's no part of this that's easy. There's no part of this that I should be able to accomplish. Yeah. And the mercy that we're talking about here is so amazingly complex that we should fall on our knees and say, God, how almost like this way, how dare you command of me something that I cannot perform on my own. Yeah. And like you said, that leads us back to Christ himself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that that's right on. So I wanted to, to address one other element of this question that sometimes comes up and the the question, you know, what do we do with these verses where like people pull out one part of a broader verse and they apply right. it? Sometimes what comes up, especially if you're dealing with um, kind of general evangelicals who love the scriptures, but but don't necessarily care all that much about applying the scriptures correctly. And I don't mean that in like a pejorative sense, but it's just not their focus. So they're not thinking that way. So I'm thinking specifically about if you were to say to somebody, you know, you can't use that verse in second Corinthians or in second Chronicles that if, if God's people call on his name, they'll forgive them. You can't, you can't apply that to the United States because the United States is not a covenanted nation with God. And they go, well, right. yeah, but you're just being too intellectual. And sometimes what they do is they go to passages in the New Testament that seem on the surface to pull out and do the same thing, right? So like um, the one that comes to mind is in Romans 3, um, verse 10 uh, and following, you know, Paul is going through in verse three, he's talking about the condemnation of sin, all of these things. And then he says, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. <clears throat> and then he actually switches and starts quoting a different passage. And he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, etc." And they'll look at this and go, see, well, Paul just pulls out that one section of that Psalm without quoting the whole thing. And this is what you have to realize. And this, I, I think that we've brought this up enough, but you have to understand the point of quoting a passage in the New Testament the people who were reading this, the, the, particularly the Jews, but the Gentiles 
who had become Christians would have done their homework and would have learned the Old Testament as well. When, right. when Paul pulls out a particular verse, the intention is not to just talk about that verse or that section of the Old Testament. The intention is to call to mind the entire passage. He just doesn't do so all at once. So, so we have to think about things in that same way. So if, if you and I were having a conversation about the law and about what, what it is that God requires. And I will say to you, I was to say to you, well, what God requires is that we do justice. We love mercy and we walk, you know, we walk humbly with God. You and I both know the context or presumably we do. Obviously we do now since we've been studying Micah, but the idea is we know that context. You know that when I pull that verse out and I apply that verse, I'm including the entire context in my point. And that's where it's important for us to know and understand and internalize the scripture. Because if you internalize the scripture in, in big chunks and you really spend time uh, studying and digesting and meditating on the word, then you're not going to do this. It's almost an instinctual thing. Unless I'm like Mm -hmm. intentionally making a point or joking around, it's actually difficult at times for me to misapply the scripture. Like I have to think harder a lot of times on how to misapply a scripture than I do how to just apply it because I spend that time in the word. So understanding that this is part of the covenant lawsuit, understanding that this is, this is actually God's accusation against the people of Israel, that this is what I required. I made it clear to you what I require, you know, and then on top of that, knowing this brings to mind Deuteronomy 10, 12, this pastor, talks about freeing them from Israel or from Egypt. This brings to mind, uh, Exodus 21, like all of that stuff has to be embedded in your mind, embedded in your heart, because then when you pull a verse forward, you drag with it all of its context and all of its, uh, co-text, which is the other texts around it that it references. You're actually bringing all of that to bear on whatever points you're making versus just taking this isolated set of words and applying those sets of words to the context, to whatever you're applying it to, you're actually bringing the full force of that passage and all of the related passages to a particular, um, a particular topic. And you know, we, I wasn't going to go here, but that's actually what's going on in the Westminster confession proof text. Sometimes people look at the proof text in the confession or the catechisms and they go, this seems like it's pulled out of context. It seems like this isn't working. The one that comes to mind is um, the question or the section on impassibility, which is without body parts or passions. The proof text for passions is a verse out of Acts where Paul says, uh, I think the uh, I don't remember exactly which one it was, but one of the times since they wanted to worship him and he says, don't bow down to us. We're men of like passions, just like you are. Well, the the point is not to misapply that verse. It's actually dragging with it the fact that Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Don't worship me like I'm God because I have passions. God doesn't have passions. So you have to understand that that's what the confession is doing. That's what the catechisms are doing. And when we're utilizing proof texts, that's what we should be doing too. We should be dragging with our texts that we're applying the entire context. And in some ways, even like the history of interpretation of that passage to apply that forcefully to whatever we're talking about. I think this idea is not foreign to us. It's just a matter of modality and medium. So for instance, we're probably more 
eager and willing and amicable to understand or accept this concept in let's say like the sphere of movies. So like, for instance, if I quote a Tommy boy line to you and be like Niner, what do you call from a walkie talkie? When I quote that, the only way it works is because we have a common and collective understanding of the entire context in which that particular phrase exists. It's funny Exactly. And only because of the context. And so the same thing is happening here to Micah. He never intended for this to, again, to be slapped on somebody's bumper sticker. It was to happen within the full scope and the council of what he was saying. And then, of course, in the whole history of Israel. And so it's easy because this is almost like the Bible is so amazing and it is so profound that the words themselves, even in their own isolated way, can have profound meaning to us. And this, in some ways, I just speaks to the enormity of God that we can pull them out and of course grab something from them. But the greater truth, the more profound meaning always happens in the context. Just like quoting a line from a movie is not funny unless you know what the movie is actually about and the context in which the line appeared. Yeah. And you know, it strikes me too, just, just reasoning through this, all this talk of sort of dragging the context with you and applying it. That's actually exactly what Mike is doing, right? Of course. He's, He's not just coming up with a pithy statement about, you know, doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly, he's dragging with him the entire force of the book of Deuteronomy. He's not just talking about um, the fact that God brought the people out of Israel, out of Egypt when he, when he does that, he's dragging with that the entire force of the 10 commandments. And so like, like always our best model for how to apply the scripture is the scripture. Whether it's yes. whether it's Paul, whether it's Micah, whether it's Jesus doing it when he he pulls forward, just like we talked about earlier with that that pet peeve, he's not just saying two or three arbitrarily. He's dragging with him the entire force of the Old Testament judicial structure and what 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 constitutes proper uh, evidentiary standards. Right. He's dragging with him that whole context. And so the reason that this is so powerful when you're able to do this and the reason why we have to spend the time in the word to internalize this stuff is that you're able to actually apply the entirety of God's counsel given to us in the scripture to a given situation with a a very rather almost miraculous economy of words. Right. You're able to use a very short phrase and be able to apply that phrase and apply the full weight of God's word to whatever you're looking at without having to expend, you know, hours and hours of discourse and exegetical insight and Hebrew analysis. You're not, you don't have to do that if you really understand the scriptures and can do this well. Right. Yeah. I think that's right on. I mean, going back to like Jackson's question to kind of round it out a bit is this idea of, well, what do we need to pay attention to, so to speak? What kind of, of the laws here do we need to follow along with? That's the beauty. There's a confluence happening here. It's like two riverheads coming together. And Mike, of course, is reminding the people of God that what God requires is a justice, yeah. is a kindness, is a humble walk with yeah. him for those that call him their savior. But that doesn't mean that Micah sees the sacrifices as dispensable as long as these ethical requirements are kept. What he's actually saying instead, and this is again in the context, is the prophet as a mouthpiece of, a mouthpiece of God is saying, 
all the sacrifices in the world will get us nowhere if we do not have the sincere faith that bears fruit in love of God and right. neighbor. Exactly. And the Lord's covenant is not a quid pro quo. It's not relationship or commercial exchange wherein we negotiate a price that he delivers our return in exchange. His covenant of salvation with sinners is a relationship grounded in his effectual love that changes hearts and guarantees our loyalty to him. Yeah. All of that happens in this verse. But again, when we kind of just even well-intentioned strip it out of the context and pull it out and say like, isn't this so beautiful? It is, but it's all the more beautiful when we place it in the light. It's, it's as if like what we have here is a beautiful foreground that Mike has painted for us, but we pulled it out of the background yeah. and it's going to be amazing if we just put it back into the full breadth and scope of the painting, which he's delivered to us all throughout the previous chapters, which precede this particular verse in six, eight. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's as good a, a place for us to stop as any. You know, we uh, we are surprised and um, overjoyed. Overjoyed might be a bit of an extreme exaggeration, I guess. We're very excited <laughs> that our no Facebook group, our Facebook group, is developing the way it is. So it's uh, a yes, it's a sure. fun group. It's a good place to interact. We've got great people who are helping us to keep the conversation going. Um, it's got its own little flavor. I do agree. It's a little spicy at times, but it's spicy in the best way. And, you know, we would love it if people would join that group and, and continue the conversation. Um, yes. we've got a lot of cool ideas for things that we want to do. We've got some thoughts about the future of the podcast, but really, you know, we want this not just to be our podcast, just me and Jesse, but we want this to be a podcast that really is driven by the community, by what the community wants, what the community needs, what questions the community is asking. So join the group, interact with us, interact with the other members of the Brotherhood, and uh, let us know what you're looking for. Let us know how we can edify and help you. Um, and then there's also, obviously, question casts. Uh, I will ask Jesse what the phone number is, but he never knows. So uh, he, <laughs> I he, don't know that. You know, he can repeat the same affirmation about popcorn, but he can't repeat the phone number. <laughs> oh, I don't understand. Wow. But that phone number is 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros. Yeah. Please, again, if you're thinking like, am I the kind of person that would call a voicemail and leave a message? Yes. Yes, you are. Yeah. So definitely give us a call and leave whatever you like there, either whether that's a commentary or a question. We would love, love so much to hear it. So I'm, of course, still new to the Facebook thing, but I've been enjoying the community. And here's what I learned this week, because in a previous episode, I gave it rather strong and I would say triggering denial against, well, I don't know if this is a denial, but I made a comment about, against country music. <laughs> I've learned since that, um, well, I knew people liked country music and that's fine. Like that's, that's totally your prerogative. I've also learned that there's like maybe a distinction between country and Western music. I don't even understand what that is, Yeah, but that seems crazy to me <laughs> that there's like another level beyond country music. There is Western and wow, I was, I was blown away by that. I don't know where to go from there. You you can't go anywhere. No. Every day is a school day. And I was like, wow, this is a thing that was that was exceptional. The last thing I want to say as we wrap this up to bring it like entirely full circle is I was reminded again, as you were speaking and thinking about the way in which we speak with one another and the language and context that again, for anybody who's wondering, is this the way that we actually talk to one another? I want to ask you if you remember you and I were having a conversation. This is going to sound like super romantic and it's not necessarily <laughs> meant to be, but it but it was a pretty, you know, impacting, uh, you know, interaction. You and I, we were walking on a beach and it was in Massachusetts 
And okay. we were comparing this particular beach to other beaches that we've also been. Wow, this just sounds so weird. Other beaches that you and I have also been at and walked along. And I remember you saying, you know what? I don't really like the constitution of this beach. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, like, yeah, that's well said. Like, I don't really, I think this constitution of this beach is not particularly superior to other beaches that we've been on. And only later when I relayed that story to my wife, and I, unfortunately I made the mistake of using the exact language that we used, <laughs> that she was like, is that what you guys actually said to one another? And I was like, yeah, what do you mean? And she was like, you guys are giant nerds. <laughs> yeah, we really are. It's okay. The best part is that between you and me, we have probably like three types of jargon language that we can use. So I have like, we, we share like theological jargon and then sure. I have like medical jargon and you have like financial yes. jargon. So there's this strange mixture of analogies and yeah you guys you listeners know because you've listened to 171 episodes of it but yeah i, I really enjoy that well that was a, what it was something i was also thinking about is that somebody and maybe it's just one person but i'm guessing it's at least a handful have probably been with us through 171 hours yeah. and more yeah it's crazy of you and i speaking to each other it's crazy yeah, because there's also other episodes that aren't numbered episodes that aren't in that count. So, yes. And have you ever listened to the first episode that we did? Oh, it's so rough. <laughs> so rough. It's, we don't even introduce ourselves. <laughs> like we were, we were trying, we were trying to be like kind of, I think, edgy and respectful of like this is just like people listening to a conversation. So, I remember that was the episode about the church, which I yeah. think was the right place to begin this whole journey. And yet when I listen back on it, I'm like, man. And yet here's the funny thing for anybody who's ever heard themselves recorded or seen themselves videotaped or just videoed, I guess, because that's a, a screw morph, I guess, videotape. It's one of those things where you look back and you're like, man, why was I such a Nate then? And the, <laughs> the thing is, you always are. Yeah. <laughs> so I've learned like that is in real time. That's who I am. It's true. Well, on that note, until next time, Jesse, <laughs> honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I